0: You're listening to Travel Tales with Fergal.
1: Hello, my name is Fergal O'Keefe, and you're very welcome to the podcast. The longest walk I ever did was also my favourite. I spent 20 wonderful days trekking from village to village through incredible snow capped. Mountains in the Annapurna Range in the Nepalese Himalayas in the year 2000. I walked the world-famous Annapurna Circuit Trail, which takes you through mist-covered valleys, remote villages, and sacred monasteries. The route brought us over freshly snow-covered paths over 5,500 meters, which tested my resilience to altitude sickness and stamina at the time. But the harder the challenge, the greater the sense of accomplishment. They say. That experience of the Nepalese Himalayas has given me a deep appreciation of the country, its people, especially the Sherpas and the climbers who attempt the greatest mountain of them all, Everest. Since then I've always been fascinated with stories of people attempting Everest, often deadly stories, from books like Into Tenere, Touching the Void, also films like Sherpas and the recent Fourteen Peaks. So I was riveted last May when I started to follow the literal ups and downs of my guest today as he attempted to climb Everest during the peak of the pandemic. Damien Brown hails from Galway and is a former professional rugby player who's played for Leinster, Northampton, Breve Brave and Onyx. Damien's passion for travel and adventure has led him to visit over 50 countries and six continents. Damien is an adventurer in the truest sense of the word, using the world's most extreme environments to test his physical and mental capabilities. Damien has covered more ground than many of the great explorers in the early 20th century, including spending 63 days rowing solo across the Atlantic, an epic trip he previously spoke to me about on our very first podcast back in 2020. Since Damien climbed Elbrus, the highest mountain in Europe and Russia in 2018, he's been obsessed with successfully climbing Everest and completing the Seven Summits. His original trip was called off in 2020 when the pandemic hit and he had to put that on hold. Last year, a window opened up for him to go to Nepal in April, just a few days after his Australian partner gave birth to their first child in Brisbane. Epic is a word that's often used when talking about adventures. But this attempt on Everest was truly epic. And I look forward to sharing Damien's tale with you now. We talk about the climb, working with chirpers, and what it's like to be on that iconic mountain from base camp to camp two to camp three for so long and so much more. Great to see you. You're looking great. Looking fit as a fiddle.
0: Yeah, good to see you too. Well, yeah, Flat Otis was um right in the meat of training now for Project Empower. So um yeah, it's it's tough, it's relentless, and it's demanding. So I suppose it's it's taking some effects, <laughs> not only visually, you know.
1: I know, I can imagine. So the last time I was talking to you, you were actually the first guest on this podcast. And the last thing you said to me on the talk, we were talking about Everest that you were kind of saying you weren't big into mountains and heights, but you did have a target because I think it was 2018 you did Mount Elbrus. So you were doing Mm. the the seven summits challenge and Everest was the next one on it. And the plan you had planned to do it in May, 2020. And of course Mm. the world was locked down. Then you were planning, Mm. hoping for 2021. And I sent you a message. I think it was like 26th of March. And you said, you didn't know. You didn't know if it was going mm, to happen or not. Yeah. And then on the I think it was the fourth around the fourth of April, your your baby, Elodie, yeah, was born. Right. And then I got a message off you on the eighth saying you're on your way to Kathmandu.
0: Mm. I know. A whirlwind to say the least. Um yeah, it was a it was a very um conflicting time for me, you know. Um I had these two huge like life events and, you know, one of them was clearly uh, much bigger than the other, but um, like uh, Everest was still important to me and had a lot of meaning to me. And I put three years of my life into kind of making it happen, you know, and building up to it. two training periods. And then the two of them were clashing. Um, And, you know, of course, the birth of Elodie and care of Roselle at the time, my partner took, you know, precedence and some priority. Um, and the way we left it in the run-up was that um when the birth happens um and see how everybody you know um comes out the other side of that for want of a better expression, uh then we'd kind of then we'd make a call on um Everest. So um Elodie was due originally <laughs> they're due date was the 23rd of March if I remember. And she came twelve days later, which is typical, right? I, I, I suppose, like, I'm just human, like, you know, you can't help but think about this other thing, you know. And at the time, I remember feeling really guilty about that. But then, having conversations with Roselle around it, it, there's a reason you think about it is because, like, you have to focus on those things because they're so dangerous, really, you know. And if you're unfocused going into them, you just increase the, you know, percentage of something sh- shitty happening, you know, and that's the last thing I want. So so even though, um, you know, the birth of my first um, child was fast approaching, I also was thinking a lot about, you know, or not a lot, but a little bit about Everest, I suppose, and, you know, I just couldn't help it. It was just kind of innate. And, uh, uh, yeah, and then, uh, you know, like I said, the births didn't come until the 4th of April. And then, like, I was basically, it was meant to, you know, by a standard schedule or by the the team I was going with their schedule I should be in Kathmandu at that point you know and another factor you have to kind of take into account here is that like I'm a big mountaineer right I'm like 120 kilos you know walking around the street weight Um, so when I'm preparing for a mountain I strip that down a lot but I'm still Far larger than like anybody else trying to get up the mountain. You know, uh, you're kind of world-class mountaineer, 72 kilos wet through, you know. There's a reason behind that because it's easier to climb a mountain if you're 72 kilos rather than 100. Um, a big thing for me then is spending more time at altitude and giving myself a as window as possible to acclimatize and get my body used to the lack of oxygen and get my cells uh, the more mass you have, the more oxygen you need. So uh, to get that mass used to functioning well and efficiently at altitude, you know, so now I'm thinking, you know, so I'm behind here, right? Um, and it turns out I didn't, you know, I, I I gave it a few days, like, or we gave it a few days, I suppose, And you know, we kind of had the conversation around, Said so I think it was, you're bang on with the dates, I think it was around the 7th of April. And then uh, the next day I was literally packing and trying to get, uh, um, negative COVID tests, and trying to get flights, and trying to organise nutrition because just again, I, I never really feel I'm particularly nourished in terms of nutrients at high at altitude, you know. So I, I try and supplement that with my own stuff. So it was just like whirlwind 24 hours. I was trying to get last minute gear, running round booking flights. You know, people were like, my mother-in-law basically was. Uh, uh, trying to make them protein bars I'd like given her a recipe for, you know, this was the, this is the extent of that day. And then I was, yeah, on the way to um, Brisbane airport the next day, um, still waiting for my uh, results of my, um, I think at that stage it was an antigen test. I can't really remember um, uh, that I needed to get out of the country, you know, and I remember sitting on my bags uh, piled on a, you know, a trolley in the airport, looking at the uh, attendant at the gate who was waiting for my email to come through. And it was like an hour and 15 minutes sort of like took off and eventually pinged into my inbox. And then I could, you know, show her that, get on the flight. And then finally, I felt, Jesus, I'm going to get a shot at Everest this year.
1: (laughs) But it must be nerve wracking then when you were flying into Kathmandu, you know, I mean, there wasn't much flying going on around the world. And so you, you know, not yeah. only did you have Everest, but you also had the worry about lockdowns and COVID.
0: It was, I, mean, I my, my big worry was just, I'm behind here. You know, like my team mm. is somewhere three or four days now, no, five days at that point into an ever base camp trek. You know, I, I'm always thinking of like the, the um, threats, you know, the threats that are going to stop me succeeding here. And that was a big one, right? So I'm like a bit anxious about that and, kind of just want to get going and catch them or like at least get into rarefied air and start to kind of get my body into the place um because there's a reason people take eight weeks you know to climb Everest like it's, it's not um it's not by chance like there's not a strategy that doesn't it's a strategy that works you know so uh, anytime that is lessened, kind of, it lessens your chances. That, that was really my big concern at that point and just couldn't really, couldn't really think of anything else around that. And I was just happy to get going. And, and, and you know, there's always, um, Uh, a question mark around how you're going to acclimatize like so people i've heard stories of people who've talked about you know have been good acclimatizers and then all of a sudden they go to one mountain and for some reason they don't want to acclimatize well at all and it's a bit of a nightmare so so that's always in the back of your mind going fuck i hope this isn't the one like you know because i i had in for fairness to me and my body and my nervous system and it had progressively there was a clear um picture of it getting better at altitude every time I went to altitude but still there's that you know in the back of your mind thinking well, you know I've heard stories about it going the other way all of a sudden so that could happen and you know this is the biggest mountain you've ever tried and it's the biggest challenge you've ever um in terms of mountaineering you've ever taken on so and you know you're not exactly a mountaineer so this is all the internal narrative so there's a bit of kind of yeah anxiousness and a bit of um apprehension around that
1: when you flew into Kathmandu, were you able to appreciate the place or were you just worried about getting going?
0: No, not at all. Uh, like it was it was straight from the airport to the hotel. Um a uh, quick kind of uh intro to the um the, the guy on the ground there, the fixer with the, the company, um tag Nepal. Um uh, food that evening up to bed, really like a last minute kind of look at gear. And then the next morning, we were on a flight uh, out of there to uh, uh, Lukla, the famous kind of uh, world's most dangerous airport. I think it's often known as uh, the, on the side of a mountain in the Himalayas. It's stunning, but that yeah, was this again. It was just this kind of expedited um, uh, entry and exit out of Kathmandu. Little did I know I'd be back there pretty soon.
1: And, you, <laughs> and when, when you arrived at Lukla, you described it. I'd never heard it before. Of it's like having cliff faces on either side of the windows, on both sides. When you're That's flying right. in,
0: I was sitting in a, you know, the it's it's kind of like a taxi service between Kathmandu. The planes like between Kathmandu and Lukla, and they're just like this rolling kind of conveyor belt of these tiny little like I, I can't I don't know what type of plane it was, but basically. There's a, a, a two seats and one seat. It reminds me of the old Air Aaron flights out of Galway Airport years ago. Uh, and I was in that kind of middle seat, if you want, the seconds, the one away from the window of the two. So I was kind of a little bit in the middle of the plane, and, and he wasn't getting the greatest views. But as we were kind of coming in, you know, uh, you're quite like, you know, you, you have knowledge that it's Lukla, and you've seen YouTube videos, and you kind of want to get a glimpse of it. And I remember looking out to my right, And like, just, I don't know how close it was now, but it was particularly close just seeing this kind of like fern um, laden kind of, yeah, like a cliffside and then looking the other side immediately on a swivel and it's very similar and very similar distance. You're like, it's not every day you see that on a plane, like, you know. Mm
1: And so when you went to Lukla then, I mean, normally, say, from there to base camp, isn't that about, usually it's like 12 days, isn't it, a walk like that? Yeah, there? that's
0: right. Yeah, that's so you right. You were probably Push rushing,
1: out. were you?
0: A little bit, yeah. So I had a, um, a Sherpa come back uh, from, he, he had been trekking with the main group and he came all the way back to Lukla. And then it was just me and him over the next uh, seven days or so. And we did that kind of seven days in what would take, I think, 10 or 11 days normally so we never spend more than one night anywhere whereas the the, the team I, I joined like when they had done that trek a little bit ahead of me they would have spent two nights in three places whereas I never spent more than one night you know so it was, it was yeah like you said it was it was expedited that way and the reason was to kind of catch me up with the main group but that that in itself brought challenges for me, you know, again just coming back to the whole the whole reality of being a bigger mountaineer and needing more time and then um you know it's it's not a smart move to rush to move fast at altitude. There's a reason every mountain, high altitude mountain you ever go on, everyone is telling you to go slower. And then when you think you're going slow, they tell you to go slower again, you know. So so that that uh that rush piece is not a not a smart move and it kinda of caught up with me ended up catching the group at a place called um Loboche Peak and they that was the a, a mountain that people use on the way to Ever Camp to do an acclimatization um uh summit and it's about six thousand odd meters so it's you know it's it's no mm-hmm. joke. Uh and they had come down after being kind of snowed out of that, didn't get to the peak. But they had they were now like whatever that was. Many days were there. There were five, four, five, six days ahead of me, I think. Uh, and then the next day, they all packed up shop, and it was kind of decided that I should go with them because I, you know, I'd finally reached them, and there's no point splitting us again. So that meant we were going to Everest Base Camp the next day. So that day was a tough day for me. Now I felt very low on energy and it was just struggling with the altitude and struggling with the the speed, I suppose, of the ascent.
1: Yeah, I mean it must have been very hard. I mean, you know, I, I think I saw you saying about the big thing over the walk was a fear of failure. So that start really didn't help that, did it? Because you were no, rushing.
0: No, exactly. You know, I I first hit me in um uh what's it called? Namcha Bazaar, which is kind of the the kind of main town of the the those mountain communities, you know, the main kind of where everyone else comes to gather supplies and mm-hmm. and there that was only day three or something and I got a headache I couldn't believe it and I felt a bit sick and I I'm like fuck you're only at three thousand meters like this isn't the time for this to be happening and then uh, and then it got me that day uh, going to Everest Base Camp um, that was a long day for me um, and yeah you're a bit shook you know because that is conforming with the narrative you have in your head about you know this is too fast for you you're too big to be going at this speed you know so it was a little bit rocked already you know uh, that was getting into Everest space camp and then you know it only got worse from there
1: because you know when you're doing that i mean it's the mental side as much as the physical isn't it
0: yeah yeah it's controlling that piece you know and uh um and looking after yourself because that mental or that negative narrative that negative chatter takes energy you know and energy is a premium up there you know so you need to be really careful in in how you're expending it even in your thoughts you know um so yeah worrying about that sort of stuff wasn't just wasn't helping things like it's just it's it kind of comes personally anyway just because of the, the threats again i've been a bigger mountaineer and what i've gone through in the past it kind of comes uh with that kind of territory if you want you know you just i need to be i need to be like hawk watching what my body's doing witnessing how it's feeling um and um and the earlier i can recognize any of those threats i can then do something about it because that will kind of mitigate what happens further along so so there's an element of reason behind it but like um what it does do, of course, if you are a little bit like unstable, uh, and now I can start to add in the emotional challenge, you know, uh, which was totally unexpected. which started to kind of ramp up around this time, you know, um, and that challenge was been, you know, having left uh, mm-hmm. my partner and my newborn basically to come here, you know, and it was just something I just did not expect, never saw coming. If you told me beforehand you know, this is going to be an issue for you, I would have probably dismissed it, said I'd be grand, you know, but I wasn't, you know. So so that added in, it just, you know, it created this kind of um, melange of um, of uh, mental challenge, which, you know, I, I really honestly never got control of until um, until I started to get stronger physically, but that was, we're going right to the end now, which was about... A week before I left, it was base camp.
1: And, and when you arrived in base camp, did you get a lift there? Was that, you know, like, cause that is kind of one first target, isn't it?
0: It is, yeah. It's pretty cool seeing the kind of um, iconic rock as you walk in, but uh, that's short lived. Like, it's a very instant pang. Um, uh, okay. And then, uh, and then you're like, where's my tent? I want to <laughs> lie down, you know, I'm f- absolutely fucked here. You know, because I was at that point. You know, I I just struggled that whole day, and that's the end of the day, right?
1: Was it different this year? Like, was it as busy as it has been over the last few years, or was it a lot quieter? Or no, like it
0: was it was a record season, believe it or not. Uh, so. They had a record amount of permits sold. Um, yeah, I think that was a bit of a shock to everyone. And then, uh, as the numbers started to climb, a lot of people were talking about it, and. You know, it went from like 160 permits, I think, when I uh, first um, confirmed. And I was late now, I remember that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then all of a sudden it was close to 400 about a week and a half, two weeks later. Like, so it was this burst, I suppose, of for whatever reason, I think.
1: You demand, then, I suppose. from Demand
0: from- and then, and I think the, the lack of... Um, regulation or care really for the Nepalese government they just they, as far as I can see they just see the uh, dollar signs you know and it's big money you're talking it's $25,000 I think for ever it's 20 to 25 anyway for a, a summit you know so um, they're not going to turn that away in the middle of a pandemic after not getting a season year before uh, you know so uh, I think they were just kind of anyone and anyone anyone and anyone was kind of looking at um, getting a permit and getting let in
1: What were the facilities like? Like, I saw yours, like, it looked pretty cool, wasn't there? There was kind of a sitting room area and and stuff, wasn't
0: there? Oh, yeah, no, it's... um, Now, climbing the Seven Summits would be known, I think, as one of the more, like, they offer a bit of a more um, uh, luxe um, package than uh, most, like... So there was, like, for example, in um, in our camp, there was three levels of tents, and um well we had a. I think some of the people had a class there was the plebs who were also all down in the basic tents yeah. and then there was the executive suites and then there was the first class lounges What's and that? you should have seen these things they were like a little house like you know they had an entry hall and a bed up on um up on legs you know and um yeah i know it was pretty plush like you know but uh yeah you know people have to pay for that as well even the tents we were in those plebs down in the in the ghetto um (laughs) we had uh they had like a big kind of it must have been a six or seven inch mattress like in the tent you know which is unusual obviously normally you have an air mattress and then you have your sleeping bag on top of that so we had that and i was sleeping great up there well generally like but you know you don't have to worry about the cold at least through that mattress you know or taking the heat out of you during the night so yeah I, I, was, I was very happy where i was at
1: although you, you described um you know some mornings finding it so hard to unzip the the sleeping bag and i could relate to that and i'm at ground level here in a valley in tipperary
0: <laughs> yeah yeah there's this um uh period in the morning if you wake up that the sun hasn't come over the mountains yet to the West, you know? So the, the camp is fucking frigid, like Baltic, right? And you like, but if you wake up 20 minutes after the sun has started, to hit the, the tents. It's fucking like a sauna in there. Well, it's not like sauna, but it's so much warmer, you know? It's like a 20 degree swing. Like, so um, yeah, if you do wake up that side of the no, no sun yet on the tents, uh, you're not exactly kind of in a rush to open up your sleeping bag, your lovely minus 40 down sleeping bag that you're as snug as a bug in, you know, and get out into it. Uh,
1: for people that don't know then, so you're in your base camp and the idea, I think you call them rotations. So you go yeah. up and down the mountain to acclimatise.
0: Yeah, that's right, yeah. So normally the strategy to for um, acclimatising and giving yourself the best opportunity to summit Everest is, so you kind of get there around kind of mid-April or into base camp. And then over that period, you'll do two rotations. So that means that on the first rotation, you get to a certain point up the mountain, probably camp two, um, and spend a couple of nights there and then come back down and then take some rest, give your body a, a chance to uh, adapt to the um altitude you've introduced it to. And then uh, after that period of rest, you go on another rotation, but this time you go higher probably to camp three and you might even get to camp three and go a little bit above it, you know, the higher you can get the better. And then you'll come all the way back down to base camp again and do a long rest. And then um, you're kind of ready to push for the summit whenever you get a window, which is normally around any time after May 12th, 13th. So um some companies, um, and it's been it it's been uh, achieved by just doing one summit rotation as well, you know. So just doing one of those rotations, but they do try and get as far as close to Camp Three on that one rotation. So so yeah, that's that's the strategy. And uh, um, the the group I was with, um, it kind of got just because it was a big mess this year with COVID. It kind of got split into. Um, some people went on two rotations. Some only went on one, um, and uh, I ended up just doing one myself, just because I went to uh, had a little break down to Kathmandu uh, because I got COVID, um, and uh, and then when I got back, I went on one rotation, and uh, yeah, that's that's you the know, way it's done.
1: So you know we were talking about getting the COVID there. So you were yeah. really like when you were doing that rotation, you were you were. In base camp, you were really suffering, weren't you? And you didn't know at the time, you because I was following you and you're, yeah, and you, you were really frustrated with yourself because you felt like, yeah, your power and your altitude, you were really suffering, weren't you?
0: Yeah, so I was just putting it down to the you know, altitude, right? Um, and there was an element of altitude in my, um, in my lack of um power, or lack of um, uh, endurance, um. But uh, little did I know in that, like, like we went on one acclimatization hike uh, in particular, um, and uh, I was way out, trailed way out the back of the group. um, And at one point, got my O2 sats measured by um, our lead Sherpa, a guy called Big Tendi. uh, And he's like, he didn't even, (laughs) he just looked at me and said, you're going back. So my, the 0 2 sats is your blood oxygen saturation level. So, um, you know, we're walking around at sea level or roughly sea level, and it'll be like 9900. But when you get up into kind of five 6,000 meters, so every space camp is 5,340 meters, you know, you, you should be in the low 90s and um, maybe some people will be in the high 80s. Uh, and when you're out hiking, it'll drop a little bit as well, or hiking, trekking on those kind of uh, He eventually told me I was at 50 at that point, um, which is, yeah, very low. So I got sent back that time and there was a lot of frustration. And then um, uh, we were kind of had a few more days at base camp and... I think we might have tried another acclimatization hike. I think I felt a bit better. Then the next day, I was absolutely wrecked. I think we did some stuff in the in the ice fall, some um, technical skills, you know. uh And then I came back from that, and I got um, I got uh, tested. So some of the group had already tested positive for COVID, and then I was like, I am not feeling well. So they, they were like, Well, we're going to test you anyway. Tested me, uh, short up positive, got isolated straight away. And then, um, turns out four more of my team also, um, tested positive at uh, the same kind of period. And then the next day we all got choppered out of, um, uh, of base camp back to Kathmandu and then isolated in a hotel there for like.
1: Did you think it was over? Through. Did you think it was over at that stage? Or,
0: um, well, I. Taught like my whole attitude around the the um this from the start really, and when it when things started to get difficult, was like just stay in the fight because you just never know what's going to happen, right? But you can't help, like, my confidence took massive hit, you know, I wasn't exactly confident, but at the same time, you know, um, there was no summit going to be had there and then, you know, so it's was just like, just hang in, just hang in, just keep fighting, just hang in, see what happens, see what happens, and, you know, I kind of gave myself this, like, there's an opportunity here like at the same time like cause <laughs> you could like you could technically somewhat ever after getting COVID like which is a hell of a story you know mm. so I was like just stay in there uh, just stay in the fight so but uh, you can't help with things like this is going to get harder and harder you know it's just it comes back to that whole piece around you need a certain block of time at altitude to get to 8,848 metres in the air like to get to the top of the world you know it's not Again, not by chance that they do this eight-week expedition, you know, to give yourself the best chance. Firstly, I was behind. Secondly, I never really got acclimatized when I got to base camp. And now I'm back in Kathmandu for, like, what turns out to be about 10 days in total. Um, So, like, you're getting back to, I think, roughly the dates were around the 1st of May by the time I was getting back to um, base camp. And now I'm thinking... So I got to go through a hole. I got to climatize. I got to see how I pull up after this fucking COVID thing. And then I got to try and get to the top of the world. And I'm like 100 kilos. So
1: I'm and, like, and the time is running you know, out as well. You know. Yeah, yeah.
0: Now you're down to four weeks. Like at yeah. best, uh, at absolute best, four weeks to be off the mountain. So, you know, you, you're not exactly thinking, you know, the odds are in my favor here. But I, I never really, I never kind of gave up on it. You know, I just kept telling myself, stay in the fight and see what happens. You know. Um, yeah
1: it showed your resilience though i mean that was what really came out they really kept going you never give up you know you were keep going so when you went back up you mentioned there the kumbu ice fall and that was something that really came across as people often talk about how scary it is but you loved it didn't you you really you described how beautiful it is
0: oh unbelievably stunning place like i mean it's just this otherworldly place of shapes and colors and sizes of like ice sculptures if you want you know like i just thought it was like i just thought man i'm a lucky person to see this like i'm literally like normally when you're on a mountain and you see something like that it's a void like nobody goes near it like right that is danger And on Everest, they fucking walked through it for like seven or eight hours. (laughs) So I was like, I'm, you know, like there is an element of me, but I mean this sincerely, like I'm very privileged to go through this and to experience it and just look at it. Like it's just, it's just bizarre and beautiful and like otherworldly. And yeah, so I I, I did enjoy it. You know, I, I do like the more extreme things in life and that's a very extreme experience to go through but at one stage I tell you we were we were walking through um at one point I don't don't can't remember exactly when and it's all it's moving you know and it's making noises and then there was this fucking noise to my left it was only about I'd say 100 meters away it was like a shotgun and you can you're you just go into this like kind of almost like mini state of like shock you know or that you don't move for a second like because there's bits of ice breaking off like and that's what it was about 100 meters to my left like crack of ice and then it just tumbled down, you know, so you've got that stuff going on as well, it brings you back to reality very, very quickly
1: It also makes you appreciate, I would say the Sherpas, we haven't mentioned them but, you know, the guys that go and they they put on the, the bridges and the ropes mm. I mean, and you know, obviously, you're with them every day, I mean, they're amazing people, aren't they?
0: Oh, they're incredible like they're rock stars of the the, the Himalayas, so the, there's um. A team there called the Icefall Doctors. So they're the people who take care of that Khumbu Icefall and the, the route through it. They set the route and they take down the route and they care for the route throughout the season. Um, so they spend a lot of time in in the kumbu, you know, and then you have all the porters and the sherpa from each team that have to bring the supplies to Camp 1 and Camp 2. So they're going through that, you know, four times as much as any um, any climber is, you know, in terms of a, a client of one of the operators. So um, we had a guy um, early in the season, before anyone was actually going through it, in terms of climbers, um, who fell and broke his fuck. I can't remember was it his arm or his leg, and apparently. Um, he swung against an ice wall, and his tank only—he was wearing his helmet. You know, the helmet cracked, but he was okay. You know, so um, it just shows you—you you know, this is this is the dangers of the place, and these are the guys risking most. You know, they, they've a much higher percentage of things going wrong because they spend much more time in there than the rest of us.
1: I did the Annapurna circuit, and um, they're amazing people, aren't they? The Nepalese—they're very spiritual. Yeah. Lovely people.
0: Spiritual, very soft um yeah just very kind of um considerate and um yeah lovely people We the sherpa themselves are just you know kind of very close-knit community mm-hmm. and um although they are like so kind of advanced and so far ahead in terms of their climbing skills and they're just so um uh, there's not a kind of note of superiority in them, you know, exactly. when it comes to like guiding you through it and helping you and you never get that from them. You know, they're just like, they're very uh, willing to kind of uh, make you feel like you're not an idiot, you know, <laughs> if that makes yeah, sense.
1: Yeah. And they're very modest. Actually that movie, yeah. 14 Peaks, Nim's Day, they were, I think they were all Nepalese. Yeah. It was great to see that. Was he on the mountain when you were there? Nim's day,
0: he was there, yeah. He was there, um, with his um company, um, Elite, Elite X Speed, I think they're called. Um, Kim, we came across him and his group, um, a couple of times when we were on acclimatization hikes and going through the icefall I remember one day, this is a guy who's doing an incredible amount for that community, like in terms of you know. Giving them the recognition they deserve in the mountaineering world because these guys are just different level. Like you know, like it's yeah, it's phenomenal, and now they're they're leading the way and they're getting the kudos and they're getting the um, well, in, in some cases anyway, they're getting the rewards. You know, in terms exactly. of the, the finances, which which would have gone elsewhere or has gone elsewhere before.
1: And so when you went back you had a real lift your energy levels went up to the level where you were doing sprints up and down the mountain or up. eventually
0: <laughs> eventually uh it was a long journey to get to there uh so i came down off my uh so i did my summer rotation after i came back or sorry i did my rotation after i came back uh and that was long and and i had good days and i had bad days um, it was i felt levels of fatigue during that So that rotation, particularly coming um, out of the Kumbu, getting to camp one, there was these like three or four deep crevices that you had to go down into and climb up the other end, um, uh, nearly vertical faces. And I remember coming out a few of those climbs, man, and I had to sit down for about literally about 25 minutes to just get some sort of semblance of energy back. And then we'd trek on again. And then you'd see another one of these deep crevices and the ladders and the ropes down and up the other side and your heart would fucking drop because I literally hadn't an ounce of fucking uh, energy. Um, And then the second time was particularly brutal. Was So I had a good day between Camp 1 and Camp 2, though. I was like, oh, this is good. This is like, this is feeling really good today. Feeling strong, not feeling that fatigued. Now it's an easier trek, but still, it's higher. And you know, you're getting between six one and six five at this stage. So you're getting into serious kind of altitude, you know. Um, and then I uh, had a couple of days at Camp Two, and then we were going from Camp Two to Camp Three, or at least going as high as we could kind of um, get on that kind of last hike our last bit before we were going to get back down and that would be the end of our rotation and that day i'd had a rest like a full 24 hours rest the day before and as far as i was concerned i did everything right you know nutrition hydration rest and napped during the day I, c- I couldn't do anything more as far as i could see uh, and literally the first 30 40 50 steps out of base camp or out of camp two going to camp three i could i felt I've got nothing, nothing here today. And sure enough, the next, whatever it was, four or five hours um, were just a real, real struggle. We didn't even get to, so there's between Camp 2 and Camp 3, there's the Lhotse face, and there's a thing called the Burschrund at the bottom of that. So it's kind of a treacherous enough um, navigation of this feature, which a big overhang, you know, that you kind of have to get under and then up the Lhotse face. We didn't even get that far. Uh We sat down. I'd say about 150 meters below that at one point, and we took a big rest. Me and my uh Sherpa at that stage, and um and then he was like, "All right, let's go." And I was like, "Okay, let's go." And just you know, as in like, let's keep going. And he was like, "No, we go back." And I was like, "No, what?" And he was like, "No, we go back." And to be honest, I just didn't have the didn't have it in me to fight him. I was like, "All right, we go back." So we went back, and then and that was when I felt this is this is over like i really like that night i that was the lowest in the expedition i was in a real bad place because i was like if i can't even get the fucking whatever it was seven thousand meters can't even get to the lowest face how am i going to get to 8 8 like you know i i just felt like i've got this there's something i still feel in the effects of COVID here like there's something like i feel like i'm at about 30 percent capacity like of what i should be at you know so I slept on that anyway that night. And then the next day we went all the way back down to base camp. And then I was like, I just got to, I just got to find a way here. I got a resource, um, whatever I can find to give myself an opportunity to go for that summit. And I uh, talked to Mike Hamill, who's the head of uh, climbing the Seven summits. And he gave me some advice around what I should be doing in terms of the, the medication, but also kind of uh, rest and recuperation. I was all good. Uh, and then um, these windows of um, opportunity popped up to go, but I still wasn't feeling great. And I knew well that, like, if I go now, I, I won't. I, I just know it's too early for me. I won't get the Summit. So I let that window go and I waited with the team. There was one full team. Um, so Climbing the Seven Summits split their kind of groups into three teams. And there was one team that waiting for this late weather window which is apparently historically comes and i was like attached to them then because everybody else had attempted or gone home or summited uh so i said listen that's the only opportunity i have because if i go with the the team that's going tomorrow for example like the the second the middle window that turned up I, I know i won't get there i'm just not feeling strong enough yet so i waited another while and over that period then it started getting into kind of the you know the twenties in may so may twenty first twenty second twenty third uh, and then there was this rumor that there was a this late weather window after this cyclone that was coming in that like we were going to get a run at it uh, and I started to feel stronger and I started I was going on um uh hikes again, climatization hikes finally started to get a bit of confidence back, and I was like, jeez, you know what you have a chance here, you have a chance this year was a mess, like you know people had been quarantined and you know, the the groups were all over the place. Like I was in a group of six climbers, and some of them ended up summiting. One to three of them ended up summiting uh, in the first window that came up this year, which was around the thirteenth, I think. uh, Another one of them ended up summoning in that second window, which was uh, apparently like none of these windows were ideal, by the way. Mm -hmm. And there was all sorts of fucking sketchy stories about what was seen up there. And, you know, unfortunately, there was a couple of deaths this year. Um, uh, Another one summoned it then, I think that was around the 20th, maybe. And then there was this rumor that there was this kind of late weather window that was going to be like some sort of fucking nirvanic uh, window that we're going to get like. 10 mile an hour winds on the summit and it never even it, it, in, in hindsight, it never even appeared like so. It was,
1: the opposite it was, actually uh, happened. The cyclone. That's came. What,
0: the, the cyclone came and then, um, then there was all sorts of like some, a couple of teams chanced their arms. Like there was some teams that had, however they'd done it, they kept themselves um, basically COVID free, uh, all their, all their team, all their Sherpa and they were like, um, we're going to try it later, and then there was all these big snow dumps, the cyclone came in, there was an avalanche that wiped out Camp 3 at one stage, but there was nobody thankfully in the tents at Camp 3, you know, uh, and some of them ended up summiting, some, um, even as late as May 31st, I think, you know, and, and then there's all the politics about, you know, people are talking about, like, what are the icefall doctors going to do, because they have to apparently their contract is till may 31st and they have to whip that stuff off the mountains it takes them a couple of days so you know um people yeah so like it's it was all those rumors flying around and you know fucking people whispering in corners and uh, it was all sorts yeah and there was he um the tensions were running pretty high in our group as well because people felt there was a lack of leadership from the the guy who runs it and so there was he got called out one night he didn't take that very well in front of the group so oh man it was like i don't know it was a bit of like soap opera there for a little while like <laughs>
1: So you were ready to make your summit attempt. So my listeners are dying to know, how did it go? Did you make it?
0: Like I said, felt good. And OK, mm. I had that kind of apprehension that, you know, like it's game day here and we were ready to go. My bag was packed. I'd done a walkthrough with my, um, one of the guides and he'd gone through my pack and I felt good. felt like I was prepared, like this is the best I'm going to get, like in this period. Anyway, Um and the way you go through the, the kumbu, you always leave at about one, in, 1 or 2 in the morning to give yourself the best chance, because that's when it's most stable, you know, in the, in the depths of the, the night. Um, so uh, you have an early dinner then. So I was having that kind of dinner around 6 o'clock, you know, just getting the last bit of fuel into me um, and finished up around 7. Uh, I was heading back to my tent to get a bit of kit before the 1 o'clock kind of leave and uh got a tap on the shoulder we need to talk to you can you come down to the other group that the group i mentioned before i was like yeah grant um so we go in there and they're they drop the bombshell. we're like listen um uh, four, i think it was something like four sharp have just come down from camp two we tested them three of them have covid um we we've been in touch with a with camp two we've tested a few people the cook has COVID another sherpa has COVID something like that you know and like once you hear the cook has COVID you're like nah, everybody has COVID because like everybody hangs out the cook tent all the sherpa they're in there they're chatting you know they help distribute the the hot drinks and the food so I was like so Basically, the the line the company took the operator was like, Listen, we're taking everyone down from camp two, camp three, even camp four. I think they took their camp four manager down, which is up at 8,000 meters. You know, um, we're taking him down and uh, we're, we're testing everyone. We'll see where we're at with Sherpa. So they dragged everyone down, took whatever a day and a half, and then tested them. And then they're like, Yeah, listen, uh, 90% of our Sherpa have COVID, <laughs> so um, that means that we have no like. They gave it they gave it a spiel like we're gonna try and bring back some of the Sherpa who've summited, or we're gonna, you know, contact some of the other providers who've shut down a week ago and see what their Sherpa are doing. We're gonna try and, you know, patch together a team of Sherpa to give you guys a chance to go. But they couldn't do that. And I don't know how hard they tried, but um yeah, so you know, without any Sherpa yeah you can't you, you, unless you're a professional climber or a very you know world-class climber you're you're not you're not going for the summit you know because the sherpa do a lot of work like so if your backpack on summit day is uh seven kilos theirs is 21 kilos you know at least if not more because they're carrying uh you're carrying one maybe two of the oxygen bottles but more than likely just the one you're using right Mm-hmm. And they're carrying another four for you, and whatever two for them, and then they're changing the regulators. They're watching everything, you know. They're, um, yeah, they're guiding you up there, and they're lifting for you as well. So, like, without them, you're not going. Like, so that was that was the way it ended. That was around the twenty fourth to fifth of May, or something like that. So it was a bit of a ah. Uh, listen, it was. At that point, I was just, I didn't have anything more to give. Like, I, I i fought so hard. It'd been such an emotional fucking roller coaster for me. You know, when I heard that, I was like, I just, yeah, whatever. man. I just, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I just didn't have anything more of emotion to give to it at that point. But, you know, over the next few days, I started to feel the kind of disappointment, the frustration kind of pushing through and even the kind of little bit of anger around it all, you know, and a, a lost opportunity. But, uh, yeah, that's just the way it it, it rolled for me.
1: I think your last post, you said it was day 48 and it was, you said, goodbye Everest, it's been an experience, but I'll be back.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely, you know, I do have aspirations um, to get to the top of the world. And I'd like to give it a good go. I really feel like, apart from the kumbu. I really feel I missed the mountain, you know, missed the experience. I missed all those famous landmarks like the Lhotse Face, the Bershwin, the Lhotse Face, the Yellow Band, Geneva Spur, you know, South Call, Camp 4, 8, 000, getting to 8,000 meters. And then seeing the Cone of Everest from that, uh, that view, which you, you can only see if you climb to 8,000 meters, you know. And then obviously then the whole the, the summit ridge and the Hillary step and all these famous landmarks. And, you know, I didn't, didn't get to experience any of that. So that's a bit of a bugbear. Like But apart from that, I, I, I kind of process it all pretty well. Like, you know, I'm, I really gave it a good shot. Like, you know, I really fought hard when I was there and I really kind of, really kind of proud if you want of the way I acted in the face of all this fucking adversity it was it was deeply challenging for me, like so, um, yeah, and that unexpected challenge, and just to come through that, you know, um, the way I did, I, I'm pretty happy with that. So I was able to park it pretty well and I just kind of go, listen, I'll, I'll give it another go in a few years or whatever I can make it happen again.
1: I mean, the, what, the impression I get from you is you really, from any adversity, you always you're very in tune with your body and your mind, and you take. The, the positives from that to use for other projects or Everest again, you always look at the positive.
0: In yeah, everything. that's right. That's right. Like I, I go like I, I I take on these things for numerous reasons. Right. But the challenge of it is really important, you know, because it's it's only in that challenge where you really get to access parts of your character and see them working um and um get a kind of clear window on what they are like you just don't get that in everyday life you know you gotta put yourselves in situations where they're challenging so I, I want that challenge and even though this one was unexpected um like and particularly difficult um I can only say great happy days you know I, I, I learned so much from that I came out the other side of it uh I learned a lot from it I'm well I'm armed better if it happens again and um because there's going to be more challenges you know and i'm sure that that piece is going to come up again you know the emotional part of it, but it won't be so unexpected next time and uh hopefully it won't take me like weeks to get over to pro to kind of get out the other side of it you know um but it's yeah so so I, i look on it all positively even you know the depths of it all like that's that's where you get there's great opportunity there you know to learn about yourself and learn about um uh your character and um and and um yeah take take huge positives from that
1: and how does it compare or is it comparable to the solo role like from from difficulty or mentally physically
0: yeah so the thing about like the solo role as a as a whole is much more challenging just because of the relentlessness of it you know i on Everest I can go up to the big dome I think what you talked about earlier looks like a big sitting room I can get a cup of coffee like I can <laughs> I can spend three days doing nothing sitting around and somebody's going to cook me three meals a day on the ocean yeah. <laughs> that is a dream like I mean every day you gotta like roll for 12 hours straight if you want at least sorry not straight 12 hours minimum kind of you got to boil water. You got to watch every fucking wave coming at you. You know, you're constantly wet. It's just relentless. Like, and there's no support, you know, whereas Everest is this kind of big safety net. And, you know, there's people around and it's, it's comfortable, you know, I'm sleeping on a, you know, like I said, a six inch mattress and uh, I have internet. And, you know, it's, it's all, so, oh, it's not comparable really to the role in terms of that, both physically, the thing with mountaineering is, is there's these like um peaks of extreme kind of uh stress physically because of the lack of altitude, you know, or lack of oxygen and the altitude and, and dealing with that. Um and you never get that on an ocean roll. Like you the ocean roll is just, you know, it's churn, grind, 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 you know, whereas you, you never get that kind of um from that like extreme hyperventilation you know, you're trying to control your breath. So you go into these like meditative states of like while you're climbing, you know, and when you're in those states, I find anyway, like all sorts of really cool insights and ideas and, you know, your mind goes to places, you know, so, um, and it's, you know, it's particularly challenging as well, you know, so you, you'd never get that on an ocean roll.
1: And all I'm thinking while you're saying that is, so you're planning to do another ocean roll, but you decide to just make it harder because <laughs> now it's the North Atlantic.
0: <laughs> that's right. Yeah, uh, that's kind of my mo. You know, I,
1: I'm <laughs> I'm, uh,
0: I'm not really interested in going over all ground. You know, I, I'm I'm interested in pushing my limits. So, um, yeah. So I was I I was thinking about this for a while, and I actually had considered this um before as a not an alternative, but as a as another option. before I picked the seven summits, I was like, I just come off my solo Atlantic row. And this was one of the options I thought about, but uh, I parked it and um, been working on it now though for like three years or so. And uh, yeah, it's coming to fruition in starting in May this year from New York. Me and a friend of mine are going to row across the North Atlantic, um, which is a particularly different beast, um, even though it's only a, you know a few thousand miles or a couple a thousand miles or so more northerly than the last route. But we're going obviously the opposite direction, so west to east, um, and we're trying to end up. the The goal is to end up in our hometown, Galway, which just would be, you know, a phenomenal thing. And I think that was the real centerpiece of this idea for me is that I can row into my hometown. You know, I think that's just an amazing thing to be able to do after this, you know, crossing a crossing an ocean and and no no. Um, no uh, fool of an ocean like the north atlantic is a, a monster like so we have all sorts of different um challenges uh in terms of dash that, that you don't get on that more southern um east to west route you know so you've got things like uh well you've got the cold of course because you're much higher latitudes you've got much more propensity for storms even hurricanes in that part there has been hurricanes that time of year in that uh, region of the um, the Atlantic and then you've got things called these giant eddies which are these giant whirlpools that you know if the boat is, they're kind of offshoots of the the, the um, Gulf Stream and the North Atlantic Drift and if you get caught in them you can just get kind of go around in a circle for sometimes you know a couple of weeks like you know if you think you're going forward really fast and all of a sudden you're going backwards really fast because we're in one of these giant eddies you don't get out yeah. of it until you're spat out of it really um and you know what else have we got then we probably possibly go through the Grand Banks area which is like very foggy it's one of the most richly dense fishing um in terms of uh fish population and fishing vessels in uh, in the world you know so it's particularly kind of dangerous going through there it's dense normally dense fog because you have the labrador current coming down the south sorry the, from from the kind of north um canada down to uh, that coastline and then you have to go stream going the other way you know see so this uh, which is cold stream cold current and warm current so it creates this foggy um area and then which is just happens to be populated with loads of fishing vessels um and then you have that's where the perfect storm uh, <laughs> the the movie i suppose is based on a, a true story from that area so, it's it's shallow water as well, which means if if you do get storms, you get these giant steep waves, which you know is very very dangerous. So, yeah, there's plenty. Sounds of challenges. fantastic. <laughs> and how long yeah. will it
1: be? How long? What's the target?
0: Well, we're going for the world record, which is um, would you believe was set 125 years ago by right. the first people ever to row an ocean, um, two Norwegians called Harbo and Samuelson. Um they got across in from New York to the Scilly Isles in the UK um in fifty-five days, thirteen hours. So that's the target we've given ourselves. Um, you know, everything we do in the training and in prep is based around performance and and being ready to um at, at least if we get the conditions, be ready to try and achieve that. Now that's the big question here, right? You know, so it's all well and good kind of you know, giving yourself this um, big target. But like if Mother Nature decides that, you know, you know, this year there's three or four storms in the North Atlantic so that <laughs> you could be Superman, you're not getting across in 55 days, you know, so two to three months roughly would be the timeline. It'll probably take us. Um, but our goal is to be at least endeavor to get under 55 days.
1: Every time I see you now in social media, you're doing weights, etc. So you do a thing called the pain cave. Do you want to tell people what that is?
0: Well, uh, so it, originally it was um, a kind of a little bit of a, a kind of, what would just say a term I put on where we would go and train. So where I would go um, and then uh, I used to have a garage gym out the side of well, firstly, actually, originally I had it back in France when I playing rugby, I bought some equipment. And over that last five or six years, I've been adding to the equipment all the time, you know, slowly. And I always had like the kind of, I wanted to have a bit of a, if you want, a facility that I could train at home as well as going to a gym. And that's kind of just turned into a, a kind of good home gym now. Um, and then I started, my brother used to come out and he, he used to say, oh, well, we're going to the pain cave today because the sessions used to be pretty. I, we used to do a lot of rowing sessions together and they're like, particularly manky like uh so yeah that's where it kind of originated from and then i kind of it was all at the same time it was a bit of t- tongue in cheek like we nobody was really taking that seriously uh and then uh yeah so it's kind of um, come from there and then i set up a platform a, a new platform for myself where i was like i'm trying to like um um commercialize what i do you know mm. and um I started a kind of the there's different parts of the platform. So there's coaching, there's online courses, um, there's, um, events, um, really exciting stuff that I've coming up in terms of big trips where people can join me, like to climb a mountain or run across the desert or whatever. But, uh, one of the parts I, I, I had was a membership site. So on a site called Patreon and I transferred that over, uh, and all the people in that to, um, to this new site, which I call the Damien Brown Method, where I know particularly egotistical, but I just oh. couldn't think of anything else. <laughs> and um, and I, on that, so I call the membership site on it, the pain cave. So, um, so that's the, and I share like just, you know, basically, basically a lot of learnings from my training, because that's where a lot of my stuff has come from, you know, just going into those windows, really difficult physical and mental windows. And, Learning through that, and, and that's something I um love to do. I've been doing it for 24 years, so um, I, I see myself as somebody who knows a particularly uh amount about that. I've spent many many hours baking in or with lactic acid coursing through my body, so plenty of pain gone through it. And, and I try and teach people you know how to all sorts around that exactly.
1: And it's not just the physical, because the thing that I always get from you. And particularly during the Everest, it was, you know, you're very aware of your emotions and feelings and positivity, the mental side. So that's what yeah. people will get from this as well.
0: Oh, from yeah, you. yeah. No, huge, 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 huge emphasis on that. Like that's that's the game changer right now. So it's I it's the I, I talk about um training your psychology through your physiology. So the the vehicle we use is the body, like, and we, and we go through that and we do that for a reason. It's because the nervous system is, it's connected. It's, it's brain, it's spinal cord and it's um, your nervous system, or sorry, your, your nerve endings and all your neurons. Right. So, um, so we like when we uh, elicit certain sensations through our nervous system, the um the electrical signals all just light up in our minds. So there's so much to be learned through that way of training um about the mind and how it works. So yeah, I've I've like that's a hugely um passionate area of mine and, and something I'm very, very kind of um uh interested in sharing, advocating, and promoting. So I've like I've got my own methods that I've over the last You know, 20 odd years that I've come up with that um, are all based around the mind. Uh, And that's what I teach on the, on the, uh, in the pain cave and on my site. It's called the Four Controllables Method, Body First Method. Um, And they're, you know, they're unique to me because they're things that I've, um, uh, I've learned through necessity, like trying to deal with my mind while fucking suffering from altitude sickness on Kilimanjaro or spending, you know, um, 40 odd days rowing without steering on the Atlantic while there's fucking seesaws gnawing away at your fucking resolve every day. You know, you spend enough time in these areas, you learn how to cope with your mind, you know, and I've done a hell of a lot of kind of physical and mental training. Um, and, you know, now I've packaged it really, honestly, genuinely proud of the kind of um, the value, the the detail and the method and the value in it and and what i've kind of poured into it myself and yeah i think it's great it's just i feel this is like a a bit of a undiscovered frontier the term in terms of training your mind through your body you know and i think it's the next step in like kind of peak performance that people are going to discover in the next you know 10-15 years and it's just so powerful like because you if you push yourself into these windows, these physically difficult windows where you're at the edges of your capacity uh, and your mind and you learn to deal with your mind there. Man, anything that comes at you in, in everyday life is a breeze. Like you just get you just so used to, you know, you've exposed yourself to your most vulnerable, your weakest, your most doubtful uh that morning in the gym or whatever and then you have a little bit of a stressful thing that day you're like grand you just deal with it like nothing is a bother you know so there's real power behind it it's a very empowering thing to learn through and, and i think it's going to be it's really going to come into the kind of the lexicon of, of high performance uh, in the next whatever 10-15 years it's amazing the mind like the mind is just it it kind of blows my mind if you want that like this we spend from the day we're born to the day we die, we have consciousness, right? And we spend every moment of our lives, but we're never taught anything about dealing with it. We, nobody ever tells us how to manage it. And it's the thing that is present in every moment of our lives. So, um, you know, the sooner some sort of education, like, I mean, it, it surely merits some sort of education, like as a young age, it's particularly now when we see in these times of so many people having, you know, mental health issues like exactly. so um yeah, so I'm I'm very fascinated by it and interested in I think the method I've developed, although it's come from kind of a totally different field, is is very applicable to um teaching people more about their mind and dealing with it.
1: So I followed you I've been following you since the rowing days across the Atlantic. So I'm looking forward to this summer following your row and hopefully I'll be there in Galway when the boat comes oh, yeah. in with a big crowd celebrating.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. It's great to see you there. And uh that's the that's the kind of vision, right? With this like is just to we really want to share it uh in terms of build that story and build interest in it and you know, these two local guys who are trying to achieve something extraordinary. Uh create history. We'll be the first Irish team to ever um uh, do it, uh road the North Atlantic. And uh, and get you know we're coming into our hometown, so hopefully we can get like the prom and uh, the docks when we eventually the docks in Galway eventually land just you know full of people uh, waiting to welcome us in, and uh, hopefully they'll have taken something from our um, suffering.
1: Thanks a million. <laughs> so I need to let you go back to the gym to get training again. It's only a yeah, few months well, away.
0: <laughs> that's all. Yeah, no, there'll be plenty of that. Uh, but yeah, no. Uh, thanks very much Great to be on again.
1: Thanks again, Damien, there for another great interview. You can also check about him talking about his original Atlantic rowing on our very first podcast, episode one with Damien. And I really look forward to continuing following his adventures. And you can all follow his adventures as well on his Instagram is owlstock, which is A-U-L-D underscore stock or Project Empire on Facebook or, or the website to follow that North American Atlantic row as well. I really look forward to following that adventure. I would ask if you could please subscribe to Apple Podcast. so a new episode will appear in your library every week. I would also really appreciate if you could leave a rating and a review as it helps others to discover this podcast. To find out who's on every Tuesday, please follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Travel Tales with Fergal. Stay safe and keep dreaming of future travels. Travel Tales with Virgo.